Bibles, if you will, to the epistle to the Hebrews, to the 10th chapter. We will read from God's holy word, beginning in verse 1. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices which are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? If the worshipers had once been cleansed, they would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin year after year. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me in burnt offerings And in sin offerings thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Lo, I have come to do thy will, O God, as it is written of me in the roll of the book. When he said above, Thou hast neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Lo, I have come to do thy will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God, then to wait until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and write them on my minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their misdeeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near.
Well, I'm going to do what Carl would like to have done, I'm sure. He didn't know I had a hidden mic hidden around so everyone can see. It was certainly great to hear from Carl and Jody and to know of what they're doing. How would you like to have toasted grub worms for breakfast? Just to make a friendly relationship. You know, it may be, you may find it difficult to have a cup of coffee with a neighbor across the street, but how about sharing mushy grub worms? Maybe they weren't toasted quite enough for you that morning. Well, what a great thing it is. And Carl and Jody do their work without a sense of, of some great thing that they're doing. They just do it as something that is a natural expression of their commitment to Christ. And that natural expression came out of a lifetime of contact with Wallace Memorial Presbyterian Church. And what Wallace was doing and bringing missionaries just like Carl and Jody here to tell you about their work. It was a natural thing, a natural decision for them to make. To give themselves to what now is something like a 10 to 15 year commitment to create a language in writing and then to translate the New Testament and portions of the Old Testament into writing so that those souls there also may experience the saving power of Jesus Christ. Well, parents, we sung tonight about around the throne of God in heaven, thousands of children stand, children whose sins are all forgiven, a holy, happy band. Well... The children are a part of the covenant, and a part of the covenant is you're unreservedly committing them to Jesus Christ. Do you mean that? Are you ready for them to follow the path of Jody and Carl, to go wherever God would send them? Let us pray that God will not stop that steady stream that has come from Wallace, but that it may continue for many years until Christ should come. That you would be willing to sacrifice your children and even your precious grandchildren for the taking of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, tonight we're going to talk about the nature of the divine covenants. The nature of God's covenants. We know that the covenants are important or they wouldn't be mentioned so many times in the Bible. You can read about covenants beginning with Genesis and go all the way to the book of Revelation and all through that section of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation you find references to God's covenant. You can read specifically of covenants that God made with Noah, with Abraham and his sons and grandsons, covenants with Moses, covenants with David, a prophecy in Jeremiah concerning the new covenant, and we know that we live under the context of the covenant of God that he has made in our present day and generation. From Noah till today, we know until the end of time, covenants structure the whole of God's relationship to man. But what is a covenant? How are you to understand the meaning of this relationship that God establishes with man? Well, let's just plunge right in and offer a working definition of covenant, and then we can perhaps tear it to pieces. A covenant may be defined as a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. If you want to jot that down, you can jot it down, but jot it down in your memory, if not in your pen and paper. 
a covenant may be defined as a bond in blood or a bond of life and death that is sovereignly administered. Let's talk about these three elements that make up the nature of a covenant. First of all, a covenant is a bond. It is that which binds human beings together. And in the case of the Bible, it is not only that which binds human beings together, it is that which binds God and human beings together. In its very essence, a covenant is an interpersonal bond. It is a way by which you are brought into a very close and personal relationship with God. So a covenant in its very essence is a bond. Now you can see that a covenant is a bond by the framework and by some of the accoutrements that gather about covenants in the Bible. For instance, you have regularly oaths and signs associated with a covenant. You have an oath. You know, you don't take oaths very often, do you? Well, perhaps more than you realize it, you take oaths. For instance, if you're married, you know that you took some very solemn oaths. You took vows before God and before men. Now, those oaths are a way of assuring the bond of that interpersonal relationship. You took oaths when you became a member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You took vows before God and people that bound you to a certain relationship. When you had your children baptized, you took oaths, you took vows before Almighty God. Now we have various references to the oaths of the Bible and very often they are accompanied by dramatic action. Dramatic actions to seal those oaths. For instance, in Exodus chapter 24, verse 8, and you can jot down these references and look them up later on. In Exodus 24, verse 8, it says that Moses assembled the people at the mountain and he sprinkled the blood upon the people and he said, Behold the blood of the covenant that God has made with you. That's a pretty dramatic action. Sprinkling blood upon the people. Behold the blood of the covenant which God has made with you. In Psalm 50 verses 4 and 5 there's a reference to covenant that is made or sealed by sacrifice. That is an animal was taken and slain as a way of binding the people that were in that covenant to one another. And in Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 37, there's a reference to a passing under the rod as the way by which people bound themselves in covenant. Now it's not exactly clear what that rod is that Ezekiel is talking about, but very possibly it's a reference to the rod of the shepherd. And the passing under the rod is a reference to this person being bound in the shepherd-sheep relationship to God. Now, you must remember that in the scriptural imagery, the shepherd's crook can be one to beat the enemies into proper order or to care for the sheep. So being bound in the covenant could be to have judgment wrought over you as well as to enter into the blessing of the relationship. 
But here is the context in which covenants are made. There are vows that are taken. Now, in addition to that, you very often, very frequently, have signs that are associated with the making of the covenantal bond in Scripture. Now, again, you're familiar with signs that are associated with the making of covenants. This is a sign right here on my fourth finger. This ring I give thee in token and pledge of our constant faith and abiding love. Remember those words, men? Remember those words, ladies? That's very important. Those are O's. And here is the sign that is to constantly remind you that you are in a covenant relationship. Now, let's have a little quiz here. The signs of the covenant. What was the sign of the covenant that God made with Noah? Right, the sign of the rainbow. God put his bow in the sky to remind man forever that never again would he destroy the earth with a flood. What was the sign that God gave with respect to the covenant with Abraham? Circumcision. That's exactly right. He gave the sign of circumcision as that permanent binder in the flesh to indicate that these people were set aside to be gods. Now here's the stumper. Let's see if it's a stumper. What's the sign of the covenant made with Moses? What? Well, I may have to make you look it up. What is it? No, it's not the Passover. That is indeed, that is a part of, that is a sign of the covenant. But there's something else that's called the sign of the covenant. The Sabbath. Very good. Give that fellow a Mars bar or whatever else is appropriate here. The Sabbath. Exodus chapter 31 verse 13. That day of rest as an anticipation of the rest that God's people were going to enter into was a sign. And every day, even until today, we celebrate the Sabbath as a sign that we are bound in covenant relationship with God. The covenant with David, very possibly the anointing of the king, was a sign that he was brought into covenant relationship with God. And did you know the references to to David's anointing and being called a son of God is applied in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 to every believer. So the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon you is God's sign that you are bound to him for eternity. And that sign is the anointing of the Holy Spirit that is placed on you, that you are bound to him. So there's signs of the covenant with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, to David. And the new covenant, the sign is what? The Holy Spirit, right? And physically we use the water of baptism. And he referred to the Passover and of course the Lord's Supper also is a sign. So baptism and the Lord's Supper are the signs. Now, some of you have not been up close enough to see our baptismal font. It's a wonderful work of art, but it's all about the covenants. It's all about the covenants. You see that right there? That is the rainbow, reminding you that God in covenant with Noah, even unto today, is bound by the oath of the covenant. 
Here is an ancient primitive form of a knife that would be used in the exercise of circumcision, the sign of the covenant. And to you that has been replaced with the waters of baptism, the sign of the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon you. Here is the fire of the burning bush, I believe, right? Okay, the fire of the burning bush is the sign of the essence of the covenant when God's voice spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, I shall be your God and you shall be my people. Here are the signs of the covenant and among them all is the cross. Why the cross? Because ultimately all of those signs find their fulfillment and realization in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is at peace with us. God can maintain his covenant of peace, never again to destroy the earth with a flood, because Jesus Christ came and provided his ark by which we can be delivered. He has replaced the curse of man that is symbolized by the circumcision and the cutting away of the foreskin by himself receiving the judgment of God in him and therefore providing for us deliverance. Now up here is the baptismal font. And you notice very interestingly, there is a little swirl, a reddish swirl inside. And it is a symbol of the blood. For it is the blood that washes us. The water in the new covenant of baptism is a sign and a symbol of our being cleansed, but it should remind us that that water is provided as a way of cleansing only because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So you are reminded constantly that God is in a covenant with you by the signs of the covenant. You are bound in covenant relationship with God. But perhaps the most amazing thing is that all of these signs are for your sake that you might understand that God has bound himself in covenant relationship with you. Not only are you obligated to him, but he has chosen to obligate himself to you. Now, what necessity was there for God to obligate himself to you as a human being, as a sinful human being? Absolutely none. You can see that grace is the very essence of the covenant. The undeserved, unmerited favor of God is the essence of the covenant. He has bound himself to you and to me, even though we do not deserve anything but the wrath and curse and judgment of God upon us. So a covenant then, first of all, is a bond, and it's seen to be a bond by the oath and by the signs that accompany the covenant. Now, secondly, a covenant is a bond in blood or a bond of life and death. You know, when you go into the 7-Eleven or the convenience store and throw 20 cents on the counter and pick up a newspaper and walk out, you've entered into a bond. You've entered into a relationship with the proprietor of that store. But it's not really a very strong bond. But when God enters into a bond with people, 
it's not just a little casual relationship. It is a bond of life and death. And the fact that it is a bond of life and death is indicated by the fact that it is associated with the shedding of blood. Now, the fact that a covenant is a bond of life and death is very evident by the very phraseology that is used in the Bible. I'll be interested to see what Carl will do when the time comes to translate a little of Genesis or of the other references of the Bible to the making of a covenant because the phrase in the Bible does not say God made a covenant literally. You know what the phrase says? It says God cut a covenant. God cut a covenant with Abraham and that phrase is used from Genesis throughout the whole of the Old Testament. God cut a covenant. Instead of saying God made a covenant, it says God cut a covenant. And that language is so frequently used in the Bible and so common from Genesis to Revelation, so familiar in the thinking of the people of God, and therefore it must have been so much of the essence of their thinking about the covenant that God had with his people, that the Bible in several references even says simply, let's cut, or God cut with you. Now, I'll just give you a few references that you can jot down and look up later. 2 Chronicles 7, 18. Haggai chapter 2, verse 5. Psalm 105, verse 9. In each one of those cases, you'll look at your translations and they'll talk about God making a covenant. But actually, the only thing that it says there is God cut with Abraham. God cut with Israel. Now, I've done a little bit of teaching in my day, and if I hear a couple of students, even seminary students, saying, let's cut, <laughs> you know what they're talking about. They're not talking about making a covenant. They're talking about breaking a covenant is what they're talking about. <laughs> let's cut. But in the Old Testament, when someone said, let's cut, everyone knew what they were talking about. What were they talking about? Well, it was a shortness of phrase to express not the actual cutting of the covenant, for it's not the covenant that is cut, but let us cut animals in two as a way of binding ourselves in a blood relationship with one another. You remember that imagery of the cutting of the covenant in Genesis chapter 15? Abraham kind of made something of an owl for his church, even though he was the only one there. He took animals and he cut them in two and he placed the bloody pieces opposite one another, making something of an owl. And the scripture says that in his vision, Abraham saw a smoking furnace and a flaming torch passing between those cut pieces. That's what it means to cut or to cut a covenant. It's a shortness of phrase to express the cutting of animals and the passing between those animals as a way of binding people to one another. Now, when I was a little boy, which is getting to be further and further away back in those ways, I, still I can remember very vividly with my friends talking about our making ourselves blood brothers. Now, we never really did it, but we'd pretend like we'd prick our wrists a little bit and rub our blood together, and that would make us blood brothers. We were committed to life and death to one another by that solemn 
expression of our being bound to one another. Very interestingly, in many ancient cultures, there are rituals very similar to the one described in Genesis chapter 15. The cutting of animals, the dividing of animals, the pledging to one another by the shedding of blood. And that is what is involved in the making of the covenant according to the scripture. Now again, the most amazing thing is that God, God bound himself to sinful men in the cutting of the covenant. What is the meaning of this tearing and rending of pieces and walking between them? It was a way of making a self-maledictory oath. A self-maledictory oath. Now, that's a $64,000 word, isn't it? But what does it mean, self-maledictory? Well, it means speaking curses over oneself. That's what it means, self-maledictory. Speaking curses over one another. When someone in the Old Testament cut the covenant, it meant that they were saying, may God take my flesh and pull it apart, even as the flesh of these animals have been pulled apart, if I do not keep the covenant that I have made with you. May God destroy my flesh, even as the animal's flesh has been destroyed, if I in any way violate the bond of the covenant. Now God has entered into just that kind of bond with you as a sinful person. He has said, if necessary, let my flesh as God be rent in two before I violate the promises that I make to you. Now God has made some great promises to you. He's made promises concerning the forgiveness of your sin. He's made promises concerning the providing for you. As so long as your days, so shall your strength be. He's made promises concerning what happens to you at death and what happens to your body in the resurrection. He's made promises to you concerning your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. He has made wonderful promises all in the context of the covenant. He as the shepherd has said, you are my lamb and I'm going to keep you in my arms and I'm going to treasure you as the apple of mine eye. And he said, I promise that to you to the degree that if necessary, as it were, we know God doesn't have real flesh, but as it were, he says, let my body be torn apart if I should ever violate my covenant with you. Wonder of wonders. God has bound himself in covenant with you. You can be assured of the blessings of God in your life if you are bound in the covenant with him. So a covenant is a bond. A covenant is a bond of life and death. And finally, a covenant is a bond of life and death that is sovereignly administered. A bond of life and death that is sovereignly administered. Now, if you studied the child's catechism as a good Presbyterian of a generation ago, you were asked a question, what is a covenant? And you learned the answer, a covenant is an agreement between two or more persons. 
Now that is a good definition in that it emphasizes the interpersonal relationship of people to one another in the covenant. It's an agreement among persons. Now remember, the child's catechism is not the shorter catechism. It's not a part of the formal doctrinal standards of the PCA, so we can disagree just a little bit with that formal definition of covenant. When the child's catechism says a covenant is an agreement between two or more persons, you kind of get the idea that God and man sat down at a bargaining table. And God said, well, uh, Adam, I'll do this for you if you'll do that for me. And Adam says, well, I don't know. That's a pretty good offer. I like this idea of being able to eat of all the trees of the garden, but I don't like this idea that you're not going to let me eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's, let's talk about this. No, that's not the way God makes covenants. Even though God obligates himself to you in a wonderful way, he never relinquishes his position and his person as God. And the covenants of God are sovereignly administered. Who would want it otherwise? What a mess you and I would make if we entered into the bargaining with God in the covenant. Your responsibility is to see just how gracious and how good God is in the covenants and to receive with wonder the privileges that are yours because he has sovereignly bound himself to you. Who would have ever imagined? Who would have had the audacity to say to God, I want you to pledge to me for life and death. But God on his own sovereignly has bound men to himself in the covenant. And it is in that context that we can move toward the new covenant from the old and understand why in the New Testament it is said that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. Because God is sovereign in the covenant, because God bound himself in life and death, once there had been a breaking of the covenant, the only way that there could be relief from our violations of the covenant was that lifeblood be shed. Apart from shedding of the blood, there is no remission of sins does not demonstrate the fact that God is bloody or gory as God. But blood is a representation of life. And in order for you to have life, there had to be the shedding of blood once the covenant had been violated. But the grace of God is seen in the fact that it's not your blood, but it's the blood of the Son of God shed on Calvary's cross for your sins and mine. What is a covenant? It's a bond. And praise God for that bond. It's a bond of life and death, a solemn bond in blood that is in the grace of God sovereignly administered. It is now your privilege and your joy daily to live by faith in the confidence of the bond of God's covenant that all his blessings are guaranteed to you if you will only continue to trust in the provisions that his covenant have made. Let us stand at this time for closing prayer and the benediction.
We come, O oh gracious God, to thank you and to praise you for the bond you have established. That before the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ was slain for our sins. And we thank you now that as your people living in the 20th century, we can be confident that every word that you have spoken shall be fulfilled. That the blood of the covenant, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, gives us that surety. Give to each one of us faith, a living faith that will enable us to walk in faith and obedience in response to the privileges of your covenant bond. And now may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be and abide upon you all, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.